A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. My friend and I were excited to go hunting on Gowdyville Road, just over the top of Gowdyville Mountain. The area was known for its abundance of game, and we were eager to test our skills and enjoy a day outdoors. As we trekked deeper into the woods, the sound of leaves crunching beneath our feet filled the air. I was following closely behind my friend, keeping an eye out for any signs of movement in the trees. Suddenly, my friend stopped so abruptly that I accidentally hit him in the back with my rifle. Startled, I asked him what was wrong. Look at this, he whispered, pointing to the ground. In the soft mud, we found several large tracks, each measuring about 16 inches long. They were unlike anything we had ever seen before. The tracks appeared to have been made by a large, bipedal creature, leaving us both feeling a mix of excitement and fear. We cautiously followed the tracks, trying to determine where they might lead. As we continued along the path, we couldn't help but discuss the possibility that these tracks belonged to the legendary Bigfoot. We knew that the area was home to many stories of sightings and encounters, but neither of us had ever expected to find such compelling evidence ourselves. After tracking the mysterious prints for what felt like hours, we eventually lost the trail. The tracks seemed to vanish as suddenly as they had appeared, leaving us with more questions than answers. 
We returned to our campsite, still buzzing with adrenaline from our discovery. That night, as we sat around the campfire, we couldn't stop talking about the tracks we had found earlier. We debated whether we should report our find or keep it to ourselves, fearing that others might not believe our story. In the end, we decided to share our experience with a few trusted friends and family members, hoping that our discovery would add to the growing body of evidence surrounding the existence of Bigfoot. Though we never found any further proof of the creature during our hunting trips, the memory of that day on Gaudyville Mountain would stay with us forever, serving as a constant reminder of the mysteries that still lie hidden in the wilderness. A few years ago, my sister decided to have a surprise 30th birthday for her husband. Since he missed his senior prom, she decided to make it the theme of the party and even booked the same hall his prom was hosted in when he was a teenager. Problem is, my brother-in-law grew up in basically the middle of nowhere, a small rural Missouri town that you have to leave the highway and travel down about five miles of heavily wooded back roads to get to. On top of being so isolated, there's a rather large heroin problem out there, both using and dealing. It's a pretty potent cocktail, but my sister was determined to have the party there. The party was at six, and my original plan was to drive out with my sister and her friends to help set up. My sister was heavily pregnant at the time and needed all the help she could get, and then drive back home with her. However, I got called into work and had to stay until four, so I told my sister I would drive up by myself as soon as I was done. She warned me that it was pretty easy to get turned around on those country roads, but I had Google Maps to help me and didn't worry about it. The drive up was fine. It was late September, my favorite time of year, and the scenery was surprisingly pretty. I found the place no problem and helped with some last-minute setup before my brother-in-law showed up. The party was a lot of fun and lasted until about 11 when the hall closed. I was one of the last people to leave, having stayed behind to help my sister and her friend stack chairs. Brother-in-law had overindulged at the open bar and had to be driven home by his friend. We ended up not actually heading out until almost midnight, and by that point, I was exhausted. My sister once again warned me about being careful on the back roads, but I'd gotten up there okay, so I wasn't too concerned about the drive home. I hugged goodbye, hopped into my car, and started working my way back to the highway. Unfortunately, in my sleepy state, I misjudged which road I was supposed to turn off as I reached the exit for the highway and ended up turning down an entirely different road that ran parallel to it instead. It was another heavily wooded and narrow back road. I started looking for somewhere I could pull in to turn around. After driving maybe 200 yards, I spotted a gravel embankment and decided to pull in there so I could get turned around. I pulled in and made a sharp U-turn so I could head back up the road, and, and as I lifted my head to check no one was coming, I saw it in my driver's side mirror. A figure in a dark blue t-shirt and jeans with long black hair and a pale face illuminated in my brake lights. My heart jumped into my throat as I gasped in fright. But after a second of pure panic, I realized that the pale face was actually a mask, one of those cheap plastic white ones you get at costume stores. I immediately felt like an idiot. It was almost October, so obviously this was a Halloween decoration. 
This embankment probably lead to someone's driveway, and the family who lived there probably had tons of things just like it in their yard. I took a moment to unclench my hands from the steering wheel and let my heart rate get back to normal and ended up catching a glimpse of the thing in my mirror again, and I noticed that the embankment didn't lead to a driveway. There was nothing else behind me but tall grass and trees. I briefly wondered why anyone would put a Halloween decoration out in the middle of nowhere. And then the decoration took a step forward. I slammed on the gas and shot forward, eventually getting back to the main road and onto the highway. I don't think I stopped shaking until I reached my town city limits half an hour later. Looking back, I definitely wasn't in any danger. I was in a car. All the doors were locked and I could easily have run down whoever that creep was if they tried anything. If they'd gotten even one step closer when panic mode set in, that's probably what I would have done. It was probably just a kid or a local druggie in a crappy mask giving motorists a good scare and not really thinking about the consequences. But still, it was definitely one of the creepiest moments of my life. And I'm still nervous driving down secluded country roads at night these days. I'd always been drawn to stories that defied explanation, but little did I know that my journalistic curiosity would lead me into a world of intrigue and mystery. As a newsman in West Virginia, I found myself venturing into Braxton County, where an unusual incident had unfolded. News had spread of an airplane crash in the area, piquing my interest. I made my way to the site, hoping to uncover the truth behind the peculiar event, as I arrived, a sense of tension hung in the air, and I could see a small crowd gathered around the wreckage. Approaching the scene, I noticed a man standing nearby, clad in a suit that seemed out of place for the rural surroundings. His appearance caught my attention. High cheekbones, slant eyes, and dark skin that hinted at a foreign origin. Intrigued, I approached him, hoping he could shed some light on the situation. With a calm demeanor, he assured me that no one had been hurt in the crash and that no crime had been committed. His words perplexed me. How could such an incident occur without any consequences or investigation? Something didn't add up. Curiosity getting the better of me, I noticed a small metallic object lying on the ground near the wreckage. It seemed insignificant, almost like a trinket or a toy. Without thinking much of it, I picked it up and slipped it into my pocket. Perhaps it could serve as a clue in unraveling the truth. As night fell and the world around me grew quiet, I found myself restless at home. The events of the day lingered in my mind, the unanswered questions gnawing at my insatiable curiosity. It was around 3 a.m. when a sudden knock on my door shattered the silence, jolting me from my thoughts. Opening the door cautiously, I was taken aback to find an army officer standing before me. His appearance mirrored that of the man at the crash site, the same high cheekbones, slant eyes, and dark skin. It was as if they were cut from the same cloth. Without hesitation, the officer demanded the return of the metathingamajig I had picked up earlier. Surprised and caught off guard, I reluctantly handed it over to him, my mind racing with questions. How did he know I had taken it? And why was it of such importance? The army officer thanked me sternly, his expression revealing nothing. With the object back in his possession, he turned and left, 
disappearing into the night as mysteriously as he had appeared. Left standing in my doorway, I couldn't help but wonder what secrets this strange artifact held. I still remember the day I first set foot on the grounds of West Point, the prestigious United States Military Academy. The campus, with its gothic castle-like buildings, exuded an air of both grandeur and eeriness. As an aspiring army officer, I was ready to embark on a journey that would test my limits physically, mentally, and spiritually. Being a cadet at West Point meant living in the barracks which were more like ancient structures that seemed to have stood the test of time. Assigned to the infamous Lost Fifties barracks during my sophomore year, I found myself in the midst of stories and legends of ghostly encounters. It was said that the spirits of fallen soldiers roamed the halls. The presence felt by those who dared to stay up late, studying or succumb to sleep deprivation. As an engineering student, my days were filled with demanding classes and rigorous training. Sleep became a luxury I could rarely afford, and the constant exhaustion blurred the line between reality and imagination. The creaking floors, the mysterious noises, and the occasional slamming of doors all became part of the background noise in my sleep-deprived existence. I shrugged it off, convinced that even the ghosts would have to wait their turn if they wanted to haunt me. Fast forward to 2011, and I found myself deployed to the unforgiving terrain of Afghanistan. It was a harsh reality, a far cry from the hallowed halls of West Point. My best friend and college roommate, who shared the same dreams of serving our country, was tragically taken from us in an ambush. Grief consumed me, and my mind couldn't help but wander into the realm of the supernatural. The day after his death, I had a dream... A vivid encounter that felt both surreal and hauntingly real. In that dream, my friend and I had had a conversation, as if he were standing right beside me. His words echoed with an otherworldly wisdom as he warned me of the dangers that lay ahead. Watch out for Ides, he said. When the road turns to loose dirt, you need to be vigilant. I woke up, shaken to the core. Was it just a dream born out of grief and guilt, or was there something more to it? Despite my skepticism, I couldn't ignore the lingering feeling that his message held significance. With a heavy heart and a newfound sense of caution, I prepared for another routine convoy security mission. As we traversed the dusty Afghan roads, I couldn't shake off the image of loose dirt under our wheels. And then it happened, a deafening explosion shattering the calm of the surrounding desert. Our vehicle had struck an ide, and chaos erupted. Amid the chaos and the smoke, I found myself relatively unharmed, save for a few stitches and a renewed sense of awe. The dream, my friend's warning, had come true. It was as if he had guided me through the darkness, protecting me from the very dangers that took his life. In the aftermath of that fateful day, I couldn't help but reflect on the mysteries of life and death and the thin veil that separates them. The lost fifties barracks, with its alleged hauntings, seemed to hold a deeper meaning now. Perhaps the spirits of those who had gone before us were not mere tales or figments of imagination, but guardians watching over us in ways we could never fully comprehend. My army career continued, forever marked by the memory of my fallen friend and the unexplained events that unfolded. 
Life taught me that there are forces beyond our understanding, and sometimes the supernatural intertwines with our reality in ways we can only begin to fathom. And so I walked on with a newfound respect for the mysteries that lie beneath the surface, ever vigilant and ready to face whatever may come. I'm a former Chicagoan, and I was on a visit last week. I stayed a night downtown at Sophile, Chicago Magnificent Mile, 28 Chestnut Street. In the early evening, I looked out our window from the 30th floor and saw what I, at the time, assumed was a maintenance man or something on the roof of a shorter building below ours. But it moved too fluidly and disappeared too quickly for a man. It was gray in color and shape. I would definitely describe it as a male with no clothes. I'd say it was about six feet tall. There were no unfurled wings. It occurred on Sunday, September 10, 2017, at approximately 7 p.m. CT, and the thought of it hasn't left me. I couldn't see a door or anything that would allow a person to slip out of sight. It was odd to see someone, something on a roof with no rooftop features like a pool or outdoor seating. And it didn't look like there was any window, washing, construction, etc. That would easily explain why a person was on a high-rise roof and then disappear so quickly. I told myself it was nothing and forgot about it, but on a whim, I called my friend who'd been with me, and he told me that there have been lots of sightings of humanoids in Chicago. I immediately panicked a bit, and I have to tell you, I am very scared of things like these. I hope it doesn't mean any harm to me or anyone else. Luckily, I live in Nashville. Are these things vindictive? In the Idaho forest, my son Samuel and I had an interesting experience in the summer of 2010 that made me a believer. I had just returned from Iraq a few months earlier, having served two tours in the United States Army. I was pretty confident in my abilities and the capabilities of my weapons. I was also confident that I was very familiar with this location as I've been coming here almost annually since I was 14 years old on backpacking trips. It was still a little too early to go backpacking as there was still a lot of snow that had not yet melted. But I had to get the trip knocked out because I was due to report to a new duty station in a couple of weeks. Seven years prior, a friend and I had walked to this lake. There was something odd I noticed. On the way up was a footprint. It looked like a child's foot, probably about seven inches long. It was clear and deep. This trail's covered with sharp-edged shale, so a child walking up here barefoot would be highly unlikely. The funny thing is, I bent down to look at the print, but walked off and didn't think any more about it. The place we walked is about ten miles in. We only saw two other people on the way in. They went to the first lake for a few hours of fishing, then rode out on motorcycles in the evening. Besides us, there are only two people, a couple, that were signed into the trailhead, and on the way into the lake we had about half a mile to go. I heard a couple of gunshots from a high-power rifle. It was odd, as most backpackers carry a pistol, if anything at all, and rarely shoot up here. Upon arriving at the campsite, I noticed the motorcycle that the couple had come in on chained to a tree. They had apparently ridden the motorcycle as far as permissible and hiked into one of the further legs. Sam and I set up the tent and started a campfire. Sam was not feeling well, so he laid down for a nap. 
and a bear bag, filled canteens, and all the rest to be ready for the next day's hike, which was going to involve a lot of walking. Around 9.45 p.m., just as the sun was making its last appearance, I peered out the mesh window of the tent as I just settled into my sleeping bag, and what I saw out the window was the biggest grizzly bear that I had ever seen. It was on the other side of a large stream that separated the camping area from the other side of the trail. I reached for my rifle and unzipped the tent just enough to get the muzzle of the rifle out. The first warning shot went unheeded, and the second made the bear walk back a bit. I watched knowing that the bear was not leaving. I had Sam keep the weapon oriented on the bear, and I broke camp in about five minutes. We had about ten minutes of daylight left, so we put some distance between us and the campsite. We had our headlamps for light on the way out, but the batteries were going out. This is an area where a fire had come through many years ago. It has a lot of standing and fallen dead trees. At this point, we heard wood knocking. It was a phenomenon that I was familiar with because I enjoyed watching Bigfoot programs. It's not as if someone had a baseball bat and was pounding on some of these old dead trees. Sam asked me if that was normal. I haven't spent a lot of time outdoors. I knew it was not, but affirmed him that it was indeed normal. By that time, an unseen creature was pacing us, even though the terrain it traveled through was uneven and encumbered with deadfall. Sam and I were on a trail and could not distance ourselves from it. Sam was in the lead. And when he turned his head to speak to me at one point, his headlamp illuminated four sets of eyes, three green sets and one red set. I heard claws on trees and one of the sets of eyes. The red set came directly toward us. I told Sam to run as the eyes were slightly ahead of us. To the left, I ran toward the red eyes and fired off some rounds into the fallen trees just off the trail. I did this in hopes of scaring the animals away. I've read Bigfoot has glowing red eyes. I can't say for sure if there may have been wildcats in the trees or something explainable. All I know is that I felt an irrational fear which was telling me to get out a little further on. We met up further on at the creek that paralleled the trail. The stream was probably about five feet deep at that point, and out of nowhere, a huge rock was thrown into the water. It was obvious the rock was huge because of the kerplunk sound it made as it went into the water. I told Sam to run, and I kept a watch to see if anything was coming up from behind us. I faced rearward on the trail, allowing Sam to get some distance away. I saw what looked to be a large figure I would say was approximately eight feet tall. Across the trail behind me, probably fifteen to twenty yards back, there was just enough light to see it move, and also that the figure was not dark in color. I figured it must have been gray, as I would have not seen a darker animal. I decided not to take any more shots as I was dark and my mind and nerves were frazzled. I questioned my own sanity and felt that I must be losing my mind. It would probably be safer not to fire any more warning shots as I had fired six to eight shots already. I put the rifle safety on and ran after Sam. Among the passengers the other night bound for New York from the west on the Day Express was a wild man who occupied a seat in smoking car number 153. He was accompanied by James Harvey and Raymond Boyd, his captors, both of whom belong in Paducah, Kentucky. 
They had three second-class tickets to New York, which privileged them with three seats in the smoking car of any first-class train when the day express arrived at the Broad Street Station at 8 o'clock James Harvey, ran down the platform into the restaurant and purchased a box of sardines and some sandwiches for the wild man's supper. His companion remained in charge of the wild man. The wild man was dressed in a citizen's dress and wore big cloth shoes. His hair reaches nearly to his waist and falls over his shoulders, completely covering his back. His beard is long and thick, while his eyebrows are much heavier than those of an ordinary human being. There is nothing imbecilic in the wild man's manners or actions. He cannot talk and seldom makes any sound except a low growl. Like a leopard, his actions are as much like those of the hyena of the zoological garden. Raymond Boyd, who seemed to have perfect control over the wild man, said his body is covered with coarse brown hair as thick as the hair on a horse's hide. The palms of his hands looked like the paws of a bear, and his fingernails, which were over an inch long, resembled the claws of an eagle. He was first seen in Paducah County 13 years ago and was known as Mum the Hermit, because whenever anyone accosted him, all he would say was Mum's the word. He lived in an old pine hut in the woods for about five years and was seldom seen by anyone. Finally, he abandoned the hut and took up his abode in a cave under a ledge of rocks known as Lizard Rock. A little over six years ago, two or three citizens of Paducah County, while out hunting, saw him running into his cave without a stitch of clothing on him. Three years ago it was discovered that a thick coat of hair had grown all over his body. Boyd and Harvey built a man trap for him, and it took over three days before he entered it. He was not afraid of any bird or beast of prey, but ran terrified away from any human being who approached him. It took two days to accustom the man, beast, to their presence. The tinkle of a small dinner bell they used had great influence over him. He watched the bell intently, but would not touch it. Some time ago a farmer missed a calf and two sheep which had strayed off. They were tracked to Mum's cave here. All trace of them was lost, and it was supposed that he devoured them in his cave, which he'd occupied for the last seven or eight years. Boyd and Harvey found the skeletons of small animals and the skins of over fifty snakes. Some of the skins belonged to the most venomous species of reptiles. The floor of the cave was alive with red and green lizards, and hundreds of toads hopped about. The wild man ate the box of sardines voraciously, and the two sandwiches, which were handed him, were greedily pulled apart. He ate the ham and threw the bread away. Whenever a train passed on the opposite track, he crouched down in the corner of the seat terror, stricken. After the train passed, he would put his hand to his ear and listen with a look of animal cunning, stealing out of his restless eyes like a panther about to pounce on its prey. Every time the engineer blew the whistle, the wild man would grab the back of the seat in front of him with both hands and hold on until the whistle ceased blowing. Boyd had a little tin music box which he manipulated with a crank. The tune that it played was empty as the cradle, and it was ground again and again to the great satisfaction of the ex-hermit, who sat and looked at it silently but would not touch it. When conductor Harry Smith took out his glistening nickel-plated punch to cancel the tickets, the wild man watched the punch intently until he heard it snap. Then he got down in the corner of the car and sat fairly shivering with fear and set up a low howl, supposing evidently that Conductor Smith was about to wing him. Boyd and Harvey said that there was a story to the effect that the wild man had originally come from North Carolina, 
that during the war he had been a sharpshooter on Bald Mountain, and that shortly after the war he had murdered a whole family of settlers in the mountain and left. Both Boyd and Harvey appear like shrewd fellows, and they expect to make a fortune out of their prize. Their great anxiety and fear is that the authorities will interfere with them and claim that the man is simply a lunatic and place him in some institution. They had the snake skins in a box in a baggage cart, together with some other curiosities found in the cave. Boyd said that the wild man will not touch anything but fruit and meat, which he eats ravenously and much the same as wild beasts. Cigar smoke bothered him a good deal, and he kept driving it away from him with his clawed hands. When the train arrived in Jersey City, the men took a carriage and said they were going to take the New Haven night boat and avoid a day crowd. I was in middle school in my gym class, and we were told we would go outside on the field today. It was the end of the year, so our gym class had finished the whole curriculum for the year. We had a choice of playing football, soccer, four, square, or just walking around the field talking with friends. Me and my friend, for the sake of privacy, I will call her Jessie. We picked walking. Only about 20 other kids out of about 80 picked walking, me and Jessie being two of them. We were walking around as normal and on two of the sides of the field. It is just woods for miles back. We live in northern New Jersey in Appalachia, so we knew what lurked in those woods. We were taught what to do at a very young age. Unlike many of my supernatural encounters, this one I had a friend by my side. Me and Jessie had been friends all year, so we had gotten to know each other pretty well. And me and her were obsessed with talking about Appalachia folklore and supernatural creatures, so we knew what signs to look for. Anyways, we were walking as normal, and then by the third time around the field on the woodside, we started hearing the leaves crunching. At first we thought it must have been a deer or maybe a fox. We never thought it would be more than that, but it was where the woods cuts off there's a hill. Not very tall, but still a hill. So we started hearing birds chirping, but they didn't sound right. It sounded like a computer was trying to make birds sound, but just wasn't getting the sound right. We were now a little confused and mildly disturbed, but we just kept walking. The gym period is 50 minutes, so we had at least another 30 minutes left. We we sucked it up and kept on walking. But when we went by the woods again, we heard the bird again, but this time louder and more demanding kind of... Me and Jesse then were skeptical about this whole situation, but we just kept walking. Then about 20 seconds later, we heard footsteps in the woods again, this time much closer and faster. Now... When you're in Appalachia and a supernatural creature is stalking you, the best thing to do is to walk fast away, but not too fast. But we panicked and ended up running. They didn't catch us when we ran, so we got less worried and kept walking. We didn't want to tell other students or the teachers, since they obviously wouldn't believe us. But we were still very freaked out, but like I said, we kept walking. But at this point, me being the curious person I am, I tried to look into the woods. Bad decision. The bird noises were now crazy loud, almost like a bird in distress. Now we knew it had to be one of the many cryptids that roamed Appalachia. We narrowed the list to the rake skinwalkers or the windy boy, but we still weren't sure. At this point there is about five, ten minutes left in gym, and this would be our last lap until we went inside. 
This time we heard the bird noises and footsteps, and we saw a huge dark figure that looked like a tree just standing there. It was not there before. Before me or my friend could even think we just ran, we knew it was bad to run, but not worse than what that thing would have done to us. We left school haunted from this encounter. The moment we got home, we FaceTimed and talked about it until we found out what cryptid it was. We researched for at least an hour until we found out it was the Windy Boy. I've had more encounters like this, but this one haunts me all the time. And sometimes I still feel like it's watching me. Early autumn 1996, and I had just returned from a tour of the Falklands Islands with the RAF. Through a sequence of events involving my trade being civilianized by the United Kingdom Ministry of Defense, I knew in advance that I was being discharged almost as soon as we got back to the United Kingdom, despite only serving two years. I still lived with my parents, male 20, but they had left the day before on holiday. Important later, I got unpacked made a couple of calls and head straight out to see friends for the evening. We go to a quiz night and all the teams end up swapping papers for marking purposes. School style. Except us. Somehow we've still got our own answers. We proceed to improve our answers as the quiz master goes through them. And surprise, surprise, we win. The prize is a bottle of white wine. Also important later, none of us touch the stuff and I'm driving anyway, but the whole silly cheating nonsense was funny. End of the night, I drive home, and remember the security alarm was still set the way previous owners had it. You had to go round the back to enter and get the 45-second window to turn off the alarm. Front door would just wake up the neighbors with alarm noise. I head around the back, and I'm fiddling for my door key in the dark garden when I realize something is up. There's no reflection in the window. It takes me a second to realize there is no window. Not smashed just not there. I spin round expecting someone behind me in the dark, but I'm alone. I become acutely aware of the winnings from the quiz night. A nice, heavy weight in my hand, and I turn it over in my hand to use it like a club. I spot the window laying in the grass. It's a standard white UPVC double glazing pane in its frame. So the whole piece that moves when you open the window has been removed. No mess, no damage. The careful placing of the window on the wet grass also means no fingerprints, so I'm not reassured by the apparently professional approach. I turn back to the door and consider my next move. The door opens into the utility room, then the kitchen. The alarm panel is in the cupboard at the far end of the kitchen. Simple enough, except entering through the window would not have triggered the alarm. On the other hand, leaving the kitchen to enter hallway would trip the PIR sensor. So the intruder, having entered via the window, must be in the kitchen, where the knives are. I psyche myself up, unlock the door, and move quickly inside, fully expecting a fight. No one. The alarm is beeping its countdown quietly because I broke the contact when I entered. I head over and switch it off, but am still wired and decide I need to be sure that I am alone in the house. I proceed to enter every room, switching on lights as I go, ready to club someone with a cheap bottle of Chardonnay. I get to the last room, my parents' bedroom. I open it, light on, and the entire house goes dark. I am so psyched up for a fight, and all my movie geek brain could think was, Ripley, they cut the power. Private Hudson, what do you mean they cut the power? How could they cut the power, man? 
They are animals. The landline phone still worked just from the tiny voltage on the phone line, and a handset was in the bedroom, so I called the police. Now wait right where I am. Fifteen minutes goes by and they arrive. My dad was such a bloody skinflint that he'd never had all the lights on at once, and I'd tripped the fuse. It turned out that my dad had the driveway repaved, and it was taking longer than agreed. He made the fatal mistake of saying, I need you to finish. We're going away tomorrow. It was never proven, but I think the traveler types that did the work saw an opportunity. They apparently removed the window and saw that I had left the spare key right there on the windowsill. A blessing in disguise because they unlocked the door, set off the alarm, and the neighbor had called my uncle. He came around, found no one there, and re-secured the house without noticing the missing window. One. Our one-year wedding anniversary was April 17, 2000. Bob rented a car because the Jeep was in the shop. After dinner, he surprised me by taking me up to our favorite big fooding spot. We took the Gaudyville Road. It was nearing dusk and we approached the freshly logged area where we had found possible tracks a couple of weeks before. Bob suddenly stops the car and points to the embankment on the right. We stop a lot along our drives in the woods in order to check impressions. They rarely amount to anything, but this night we hit the jackpot. We had no camera with us since the drive was a surprise, so we went back two nights later and took photos. There were six impressions in all, covering a distance of about twenty feet, going up an embankment. The stride, as measured from heel to toe, was three and half feet uphill, and Bob can barely match it. The prints were fourteen feet long and about five feet wide. There were no toe details. The Gaudyville area has a history of sighting and footprint reports. A friend who works in the local grocery store told us that he and a friend were hunting up there a few years ago and found tracks. Another friend claims that his mom kept horses just off of the Cottage Grove Lorraine Road and that she heard screams coming from the Gaudyville area which spooked her horses. Me and my girlfriend, now wife, did a road trip out to Haya de Guay back in 2017. We walked on the ferry and rented an older Ford truck on the island. The whole island kinda gave me an eerie feeling just being in this weird overgrown rainforest environment that I was not used to. Lots of people seemingly squatting on crown land everywhere as well. Anyway, after a day of crabbing, we jumped in the truck and were looking for somewhere to set up a camp. We had been just setting up down old logging roads. We took a turn off the highway onto one and kept following it, thinking we might get a good spot with a view. The trail kept getting narrower and narrower the farther we went. Way the hell back in there, we hit a small clearing with a very narrow trail exiting the back. It seemed like a good spot, and the trail looked like it would lead to a river. There were no tracks into the clearing, so it seemed we would have some privacy. We got out of the truck, and it was just impenetrable regrowth on every side of the clearing, and I was getting that hair standing up on the back of my neck feeling. Kind of a hills have eyes feeling. The sun's going down, and the thick brush accelerated it. We decided to check out the narrow trail down the river, but I get maybe five steps down the trail and glance down, and sitting in the middle of the trail on top of the grass and soft soil is a single kid's cat's eye marble. 
It looked like it could have been dropped moments earlier. Freaked me out for some reason and we got out of there. When I was around five years old, I was asleep in the living room along with my siblings and parents, as we didn't have bedrooms at the time. Across the living room was the kitchen. I wake up around 2, 3 a.m., look to a huge wooden spoon hanging by the window, the usual. However, there was a large, bright, white, glowing light reflecting, and I got confused. So I went into the kitchen, turned my head to the left, directly in front of the stairs, and there an apparition was. A girl with huge, black, stringy eyes, black, crazy, frizzy hair, and no nose or mouth. She was wearing a white gown. All of her was white. It matched her gown, and it all flowed into the floor. I asked what she wanted, and nothing happened. I stared in awe for a couple of seconds, ran back to the living room, tried waking everyone up to no avail. The reflection could still be seen. I covered myself fully with a blanket and cried myself to sleep. I would tell my mother about it immediately, and a few weeks ago, when we were discussing this event, she told me that I spoke to her about being afraid of this girl in the house, but she would comfort me by saying I was okay and safe and that nobody was there. She would eventually see the girl for herself and connect it to what I told her, and she would go upstairs to make sure I was okay. My brother also saw her, but when he saw her, she was sitting on his bed with a polka dot dress, still black eyes and black crazy hair. A few years later, I would see her again. My brothers were jumping on the trampoline with their friend and went inside after I went to join them. I was jumping by myself and looked up at the window above the stairs, and she was looking outside. She looked the same, black stringy eyes. It was like 10 a.m., and everybody was home, but I was the only one to see it. That was the last time I ever saw her. Thankfully, she was the scariest thing I have ever seen with my own eyes. A lot of paranormal happened in that house, however. This story is one of the worst ones. My dad used to have audio of a little girl within the home when he left for work, and before I was even born, I'm the only girl besides my mom. He didn't even mean to capture anything, besides a haunted painting which a camera was pointed at the entire time. The video was around 6-8 hours in length, and the girl didn't start talking until around 2.5 hours in. You could hear jumping on bed. That would be my parents' bed, little feet running down the hallway, and a little girl saying, Daddy, I made it through. Then you heard a low grunt sound right after. I'm not going to lie, that painting is extremely haunted. You could see it change expression slightly, but noticeably, and feel wetness under the eyes when it looked upset. It's very possible that it opened up some sort of portal. Whenever that painting is hung up, be prepared for the paranormal and strange is all I'm saying. I don't know what happened to that painting for it to become haunted, but it's not a good haunting, that's for sure. My dad claims he got rid of it, but it's a painting of his grandma. I don't know how much to believe that he got rid of it, 